Journalism's a shrew and a scold. I like her. She makes you sick. She makes you old. I like her. She's daily trouble, storm and strife. She's love and hate and death and life. She ain't no lady. She's my wife. I like her. A biography in sound. FPA, his column, and his friends. Somebody once said he looked like a benevolent vulture. It was extremely discouraging to wake up in the morning faced with doing a column and then to read Frank's column in the morning world, a brilliant, wonderful column that you knew that not in a thousand years you could attain. I can't offhand think of anyone who has a better conception of and performance in friendship. He never wrote a careless line of prose in his life. Everybody, just everybody, read that column. List of FPA's contributors is almost like a uh, uh, who's who in the, the literary history of the past generation. And Franklin P. Adams had a definite influence on the newspapers of the last 50 years. A thing of shreds and patches Of ballad songs and snatches And dreamy lullaby My catalog is long Through every passion ranging This is a transcribed biography and sound of F.P.A., one of the most distinctive personalities of our times. A columnist, poet, journalist, author, wit and member of the panel of information, please. In his column of April 3rd, 1922, he wrote, Saw to Mistress Margaret Swope's party. Very gay there. And we had a spelling bee. And I won easily, Deems Taylor being the only one that could give me any competition. And did some charades and all manner of rag, tag, and bobtail. Home at three in the morning, and so to bed. I remember many such evenings with Frank Adams because he was always a great one for parties, for games, and for any kind of fun. Incidentally, this is Deems Taylor, one of the friends who would like to talk a little bit about Frank tonight. In 1901, young Franklin Pierce Adams of Chicago, Illinois, was an insurance solicitor. One February morning, he called on George Ade, a famous humorist of the period. He found Mr. Ade enjoying a breakfast at 11 o'clock in the morning, a breakfast including strawberries, which were not common in Chicago in the wintertime in 1901. And that's when he said... A writer's life from me. His career began on the Chicago Journal in 1903. Then he came to New York to conduct a column called Always in Good Humor on the Evening Mail. This later became the famous Conning Tower. In 1911, he began a feature called The Diary of Our Own Samuel Pepys. This was a personal record in the style of the great English diarist who left us a fascinating record of his life and time in the 17th century. In FPA's column, which has been collected and published by Simon & Schuster, Frank Adams gave us a unique record of three decades of our own century. A few years ago, Howard Lindsay and I were asked uh, to do something at a dinner in FPA's honor at the Players Club. And we decided to read from Frank's diary. And Howard took one volume, and I took the other volume. It's in two volumes. And I spent two days looking through this, absolutely fascinated because this, I think, is the greatest record of our time that I've ever read. Uh, now, this may be because I knew most of the people mentioned, but I think it reflects a great many things in the theater, in the world of art, music, and in, in, uh, all of that sort of thing. Uh, and I, I, I think that anyone who really wants to know what went on from the turn of the century until uh, Frank retired as a columnist uh, has only to read that to get a wonderful picture. This is Russell Krauss. On April 19, 1928, F.P.A. wrote in his diary, So to the theater and saw a tenuous play, but sat next to Hilda Jackson and had a merry time holding her hand. Much to the discomfiture of Russell Krauss, 35 of number 2267 North 15th Street, Upper Tooting, Kansas. Unquote. Since then, Mr. Krauss has become an extremely successful playwright and member of the producing firm of Lindsay and Krauss. I believe that... Franklin Pierce Adams, or FPA as he was known to practically everybody who read and wrote in his heyday, contributed more to the lighter side of American literature than any single person of our time. 
not only what he himself did, but what he developed in others. I was uh, kind of a victim of this in a way because at part of the years that Frank was conducting his column, I had a column of a, I'll say, a similar nature because it in no way approached Frank's column on the Evening Post. And it was extremely discouraging to wake up in the morning faced with doing a column and then to read Frank's column in the morning world, a brilliant, wonderful column that you knew that not in a thousand years you could attain. That was a wonderful page. It was practically an entertainment in itself, the opposite editorial page, the op-ed page, as it was called, in the morning world. Adams and Haywood Brune, who was then at his brilliant best, and the wonderful dramatic reviews by Alexander Wolcott and Allison Smith, Frank Sullivan's humorous column from time to time, and his contributions to Frank's column, the music column by Samuel Shotsonoff. Uh, Lawrence Stallings, I think, did most of the book reviews at that time. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience just to read that page in the morning. It, it was practically a, a day's entertainment, as I say. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit, though, about one form of humor or uh, light writing that he developed. And, and in this, I think he was absolutely the, uh, the leader and I think uh, his own leadership has resulted in a very fine form of American light verse, which we didn't have before he started. To begin with, he himself was a brilliant mini-singer. He wrote wonderful verse. Uh, I think it ranged all the way from that rollicking baseball classic, which will live as long as baseball is our national game, Tinker to Evers to Chance, all the way from that to his wonderful translations of Horace's Odes, uh, which were not only light and lovely, but profound, too. They were wonderful. It was a great honor to appear in Frank's column. And these uh, youngsters then, and oldsters now, perhaps, uh, I'm not pointing at anyone, uh, were uh, uh, a lot, a great many of them had their first verse printed in Frank's column, and some of them, perhaps not their first, but uh, some of their very good verse. Uh, in that class, let's say, People like Edna St. Vincent Millay and Eleanor Wiley, Floyd Dell, Witter Binner. Uh, then among those who really came out in Frank's column as, as minor poets, and I don't say minor because in their field of light verse, they're major poets. People like uh, Deans Taylor, who wrote verse under the name of Smead, which uh, it doesn't take a very bright person to figure out his Deans spelled backwards. Dorothy Parker, uh, Wilson, Lee Wilson Dodd, uh, William Rose Benet, Howard Dietz, who wrote under the name of Freckles, Newman Levy, who was Flaccus, and whose wonderful parodies on the opera, telling the, the uh, uh, rather heavy stories of grand opera in, in, in light verse. Just wonderful. They were later published as, in book form under the title of Opera Guide, G-U-Y-E-D. Uh, a great many of you don't know that George Kaufman was a poet. He uh, appeared very frequently in Adams's column, under the title of GSK, under the signature of GSK, rather. Uh, Maury Riskin, who later went on to uh, write musical shows and Hollywood scenarios. Christopher Morley, before he got a column of his own, contributed to, contributed to Frank's column. Uh, I think that, as a matter of fact, the, the whole uh, feeling of American humor began to change with Adams's time while I don't say that he was absolutely responsible for that, I think that he contributed greatly to it. F.P.A. is a remarkable individual, partly because of his extremely wide range of interests. One of those interests is music, music of all kinds. But he has always had one particular musical enthusiasm. In the column of May 20th, 1912, he wrote, To the Playhouse to See Patience, and Sir Arthur Sullivan's music so melodic I could hear it a hundred times. And I am of the opinion that Sullivan was a genius, and Gilbert a man with a high talent.
that's a bit of the overture from Patience. And all of the songs and snatches we're hearing are from Gilbert and Sullivan. In the days when we were all a little younger, Frank Adams was interested in almost everything. In one of the very first columns of his diary, he refers to riding a bicycle. And a brave sight he was in a bright red tie puffing a big cigar as he pedaled along. He always had a boyish love of baseball and winced when the Chicago Cubs beat the New York Giants. The Cubs at one time had a famous double play combination which he made immortal in verse. The verse Russell Krauss referred to, the verse that goes like this. These are the saddest of possible words, tinker to Evers to chance. Trio of bear cubs and fleeter than birds, tinker and Evers and chance. Ruthlessly pricking our gonfalon bubble, making a giant hit into a double. Words that are heavy with nothing but trouble. Tinker to Evers to chance. During the First World War, Frank served as an intelligence officer in Paris and wrote for the service magazine, The Stars and Stripes. He also helped form the Thanatopsis Literary and Inside Straits Society, and this group continued to play poker far into the night in later years. And there was another game he played with desperate passion. There's no game in uh, the entire category of sports that is so completely irritating and so upsetting as croquet. The tendency to cheat is always present. And the desire to knock the brains out of your opponents is never lacking. Wilkert was the worst. Harpo Marx was pretty bad. FBA made a pretense of preserving good nature. That was Herbert Byard Swope, a famous newspaper reporter and editor, and now a publicist. Croquet was no sissy game with that group. They played for keeps. Margaret Case Harriman recalls how Harpo Marx was once found hiding behind a tree, weeping with frustration over a missed shot. No, there was no end to Frank's enthusiasms. In the column of September 10, 1916, he wrote, To the office all morning, and in the afternoon, Sigmund Spaeth playing like a champion, beat me five out of seven sets, which heartened him greatly, as he was beginning to despair of ever defeating me again. Well, I suppose I played more tennis with Frank Adams than anybody else, both as a partner and as an opponent. Uh, I met him first on the tennis court, actually. That must have been about 1913. And he used to go up to the so-called Nutleck courts up there near where the uh, Juilliard School of Music is now, up around 120th Street, Notlek was the name that was made up from the name of the man who ran the course, which was Doc Kelton, K-E-L-T-O-N. You see, Notlek was an early example of the Serratan technique. And a lot of people played tennis up there on these public courts, and I happened to wander up there one day looking for a game. And I ran into Frank Adams, and he was very disgusted. He'd made a date to play with Rube Goldberg, and it turned out Rube didn't know the first thing about tennis, so... Frank stopped playing and came into the locker room and said, can anybody here play tennis? He says, this fellow is no good at all. So I was elected to be his first opponent up there. Uh, and um, we played a set, which I won. And then uh, Frank got going pretty well. He, he was quite steady. He could, he could return the ball. He could keep it in play. And very often he would baffle uh, quite good players by his, by his steadiness, his persistence in getting the ball back. Well, in the second set, he ran into a lead of five love. And when we got to that point, he said, how in the world did I ever manage to lose that first set? And that got my dander up a little bit. I said, I'll show you. And got busy and put the pressure on and managed to win that set. After that, we became very good friends and also very steady rivals, uh, as well as uh, doubles partners. We, we actually played in some of the tournaments around here. I might say right now that neither Frank nor I could have ever been considered a really good tennis player, but we, we were both enthusiasts. We got a lot of fun out of it. This is Sigmund Spaeth, a music critic who worked on newspapers with FPA and perhaps best known as the tune detective. Frank's game consisted of practically one shot, which was a forehand drive, and when it came off, it was good. 
Whenever he had the ball on his right side, he would go all out for that forehand drive. He'd swing around and go completely off his feet if he missed it, which he did once in a while. In fact, that happened when the information pleas uh, experts played an exhibition match out at Forest Hills in the stadium. They put them on there one year to play between matches. And it, it was it was not too funny because they were just good enough uh, to to uh, make some impression as tennis players. They had Jack Kieran and Deems Taylor and Frank and uh, I'm not sure whether Fadiman played or not. But uh, the best of the lot was Kieran. Kieran played played a fair game. Deems wasn't bad, uh, but Frank uh, did his usual trick of swinging at the ball forehanded and missing it completely. Went completely around, and of course the crowd roared at that. They they loved it. And uh, as a result of our playing tennis so much, I. Uh, I think I appeared in the column just about as often as anyone. I, I was sure to appear in it if, if Frank beat me. And occasionally I appeared in it even when I beat him. Uh, this great gift of enthusiasm that Frank Adams had, of course, applied not only to tennis but to all of his activities and things which he might have done merely as an amateur, such as tennis. And I might include music because he was he was a great musical enthusiast. He played the harmonica pretty well, and he loved to do it, and he loved to sing old songs. He knew the words of any number of songs, and he and I were always comparing notes as to the correct versions of My Mother Was a Lady or If Jack Were Only Here or The Little Lost Child and some of these other songs which he would like to boom out in a deep bass. And uh, I, I sometimes played the piano for him, and sometimes we just joined together in harmony, as it were. But I'm emphasizing that enthusiasm, uh, which made what he did very attractive to other people. He had a great gift of making friends, of, of uh, getting the best out of the people that he met. Uh, his peep's diary sounded very often as though he were merely talking about the celebrities that came into his life, but actually it was much more than that. He he would get the best out of them, and they would get something from Frank, which was in, which was an inspiration. And it still comes down again to this enthusiasm, which was the it was the enthusiasm of a boy. He he remained youthful, and I would I would imagine that today he has that same youthful spirit. He's no longer a young man, but uh, uh, Frank could never completely lose that that enthusiasm, which made him so successful. <laughs> During the 1920s, Frank was a prominent member of the famous roundtable group which met at the Algonquin Hotel. This was an informal luncheon group composed of many of the brighter and more impecunious wits of the period. On February 1923, FPA wrote, So to an inn for luncheon, and Frank Case told me about a cinema star noted for his parsimoniousness who had gone to purchase a ring for his fiancée and had his finger crushed between two pushcarts. The Frank Case referred to was the owner and manager of the Algonquin Hotel at that time. This is his daughter, Margaret Case Harriman, who became a contributor to the New Yorker and other magazines and a wit worthy of her background. You've all heard of the Algonquin Hotel, but it's a special place to me because my father, Frank Case, owned it, and I grew up there. I must have been a fast nine or ten years old when FPA began coming there to see his friend Sam Merwin, the novelist. Although I've known F.P.A. most of my life, I still call him Mr. Adams. He is a kind of fierce-looking man with a habit of rearing back and looking down his nose at you. Somebody once said he looked like a benevolent vulture. But as Father and I came to know him, he turned out to be the kindest man in the world. He gave me the first fountain pen I ever owned when I went away to school in France, along with a copy of his book, Tobogganing on Parnassus. The book was inscribed with F.P.A.'s usual grace and charm. Your parents want no part of this book, therefore you can have it. Talking about tobogganing reminds me of my own favorite remark of F.P.A.'s. It had to do with Harold Ross, editor of The New Yorker, and a fellow member of the Algonquin Round Table. Ross had a face as solemn as a clown, and at that time wore his hair in the highest crew cut in town estimated at one and a half inches tall. One winter Sunday, F.P.A. took him to bargaining in Connecticut. How did Ross look to bargaining, somebody at the round table inquired on Monday. Well, said F.P.A. thoughtfully, you know how he looks not to bargaining. F.P.A.'s famous column, The Conning Tower, in the Tribune and later in the world, was the shining goal of every man, woman, and even child who could hold a pencil or tap out a page on a typewriter. The Conning Tower printed the first piece I ever wrote. Poetry it was. 
And I was all the more grateful because I knew that FPA's delicately concealed kindness of heart had nothing to do with it. No matter how much he loved my father, and he did, that piece would never have gotten into the conning tower if it hadn't been good enough. FPA's high standard of perfection was one reason my father enjoyed getting a laugh out of him, almost more than from anyone else in the roundtable group. Bob Benchley and Mark Connolly, for instance, laughed right along with you, or at least they chuckled when you were telling them something funny. Not so, Mr. Adams. Mr. Adams actually stared at you down his nose and defied you to be funny. If what you said was funny, you got no more than an upward curve of the mouth and maybe a pat on the shoulder. But your remark appeared duly credited next day in the conning tower. My father appeared more often than not in the conning tower, generally in FPA's diary of our own Samuel Keeps. Many of the things father originally said have become part of the joke file of every comedian, and I hesitate to repeat more than a couple of them here. For example, when you hear a comic saying, Time wounds all heals, well, remember that Fowler invented it, referring to a certain gent who stuck him with an unpaid hotel bill. One day, FPA asked Fowler if he planned to do anything to recover the balance owed to the Algonquin by this well-known chiseler. No, said Fowler calmly. I guess I'll just charge it up to profit and loss. FPA was often called the dean of the Algonquin round table in the early 20s, mainly because he had a steady job and was more solvent than any of the other members at that time. The others, Benchley, Alec Wolcott, Robert Sherwood, George Kaufman, Mark Connolly, Dorothy Parker, and so on, soon prospered, of course. Nobody ever got away with any highfalutin behavior with FPA. At one time, Alec Wolcott became so affluent that he moved into an elegant penthouse on the East River and grandly invited his friends to the round table to give him a shower of linen, china, and silver. FPA complied, but managed to keep his standards of simplicity intact. What he contributed to Wolcott's linen, china, and silver shower were a handkerchief, a moustache cup, and a dime. Among all these pleasantries, FPA kept up an unceasing warfare, personally and in his column, against anything that seemed to him to be shoddy, idiotic, or wrong. He was against illegible house numbers, dry sweeping of the sidewalks, the high cost of theater tickets, the improper use of who and whom, and on a more solemn note, the trial and execution of Sacco and Vanzetti. If F.P.A. liked what a writer wrote, and if the fancy took him, he also told the writer so. Possibly because he is by nature a reticent man, these words of praise were always brief and sometimes deliberately ungrammatical. One time he stopped me in the Algonquin lobby after a piece I wrote had come out in some magazine, and he spoke to me three words. You write good, said Mr. Adams. Those three words meant more to me than any flossier reviews from any chattier critic. Frank's praise was hard to win, but when he felt it was deserved, he gave it generously. As you've heard, he had many enthusiasms, but his greatest love was journalism. At various times, his column, The Conning Tower, appeared in different New York newspapers, The Evening Mail, The Tribune, The World, The Herald Tribune, and The Post. But it is most identified with that old world in the glory days when Herbert Byard Swope was the dynamic executive editor. On April 23, 1916... F.P.A. wrote, To C.H. Swope, the gazetteer, who hath an illness in his throat, poor man. For his small daughter, Jane, I contracted my face to her great glee. But she says she doth find amusement in my features even when I make no effort to be droll. I'm uh, very glad to be here because I feel that I'm discharging an obligation. Although I do recall what you have just now read the misery in my throat. And as you may observe, and your millions of listeners do too, and I've still got it. And what uh, Frank said about uh, my little daughter 
finding him most comical. Not merely because he contorted his face, but he had that natural gift. I would like to say, uh, in a more serious way, that Franklin P. Adams had a definite influence on the newspapers of the last 50 years. He continued uh, the good work of his predecessors, particularly including Bert Leston Taylor, the old BLT of the Chicago Tribune, and others of that type. Uh, speaking of Bert Leston Taylor, FPA once wrote, Bert Leston Taylor, BLT, who conducted a line of type or two in the Chicago Tribune, wrote the best newspaper column ever run before or since. FBA was in the tradition of the humorists of another day. FPA was a columnist, not a columnist. He indulged in personalities, but he never indulged in gossip. It seems to be difficult for some of those whose names appear at the tops of columns to realize the wide gulf between commentators and gossipers. In a personal way, I've been accused of citing the present craze for columnists. The op-ed page in the world, the page opposite editorial, had many names and many columns, but not one of them was given over to scandal-mongering. Those names included FPA, Walter Lippmann, Alexander Wolcott, Haywood Brune, Deems Taylor, if I may include him in that galaxy, <laughs> William Bolitho, Lauren Stallings, Charlie Michelson, Dudley Nichols, and others who fitted in that class. Adams was, and is yet, a purist in semantics. And he had a deep sense of humor, as well as wit. In my definition, humor comes from the heart, while wit comes from the head. The first is touched with good nature, and the other is almost always pointed in malice. F.P.A. had real good nature. He always helped rather than hurt. He had a deep sense of journalistic responsibility and a deep appreciation of accuracy. I have had a deep affection for him for almost half a century, and I take this means of making a vow of the debt I owe him and journalism owes him for his ability, his warmness, and his kindness. My thanks. When the world came to an end, when that is, the end of the old New York world, it was a sad event for newspaper men everywhere. Naturally, there's something sad about the end of any newspaper, especially one with a great tradition. But this was the newspaper that newspaper men admired above all others. Frank had worked happily there for more than ten years. His column moved over to another paper, but he was heartbroken about the death of the paper that he loved. However, he was still a journalist, and he wrote these words, which appeared in the last issue of The World on February 27, 1931. Journalism's a shrew and a scold. I like her. She makes you sick. She makes you old. I like her. She's daily trouble, storm and strife. She's love and hate and death and life. She ain't no lady. She's my wife. I like her. Biographies and sound will continue after a brief pause for station identification. This is a biography in sound. FPA, his column, and his friends. With a commentary by Deems Taylor. For many of us, the Conning Tower column and the feature called A Diary of Our Own Samuel Pepys was a part of our lives for many years. As a matter of fact, we seemed to look over Frank Adams' shoulder as though he were writing the diary of our own lives. On May 4th, 1932, 
a young man named Fadiman read this about himself. So Clifton Fadiman came in, and we had a talk about fiction writing, and he's so amusing and truly comical that I wondered why he does not write books about things instead of things about books. But happily, I was too vehement about saying so, forgetting my wife's adjuration about gentleness. But, Lord, when I'm soft-spoken, nobody can hear me. I worked almost 12 years with him on Information, Please. Some of you may remember that radio program. On that show, his wit was keen, it was exact, and, well, it was playful. That was it. He, uh, he has the kind of mind that can be absurd without being undignified. Once during the course of one of the shows, on Information, Please, that is, I had to warn the studio audience, you know, not to help the experts by loudly whispering the answers. Audience is always smarter than the experts. And I had to warn the experts, too. I said very sternly, no eavesdropping, please. Then I remember Frank raised his hand. I said, yeah. He said, Adams dropping okay? People always talk about Frank Adams' memory. And it is. It's a wonderful one, like John Kieran's. It's one in a million, I suppose. And the funny part of it is that the further back in his lifetime that his memory goes, the uh, sharper and more precise it is. He was particularly good at remembering old songs, old baseball players, even old jokes, too, though he prefers new-minted ones from his own inexhaustible mind. I'm a writer, first and foremost. That's really what I want to talk about in connection with Frank Adams, because he taught me and my whole generation so much. He, he never wrote a careless line of prose in his life, or a careless line of verse, for that matter. He was and remains a, a real stylist. You know, he has a kind of respect for the English language that, well, not so many American writers possess. My generation used to read Frank Adams' The Cunning Tower, not merely for fun, though Lord knows it was fun, but because nearly every day it contained a model of good prose or workmanlike verse. I don't suppose Frank has ever thought of himself as a, you know, a professor or a teacher, but... For my generation, at any rate, that's what he was. In his own fashion, FPA was a great teacher. It's been said that the art of being a good conversationalist is to be a good listener. While FPA was a brilliant poet and journalist in his own right, he had the even rarer gift of appreciation. He praised the work of his friends in his column. But as he himself said... Friendships are first formed through admiration of work rather than the other way about. On Sunday, October 17, 1926, he wrote, Lay long, it being a gray and mizzling morning, and so heard that W.E. Woodward lived near Westport, and so began to look for his house and finally found it due to the acute memory of my wife, who has a curious habit of listening to directions. But the minute somebody tells me how to get to a place and what road and which turns to take, I do not listen, for I have found that not one person in 50 can direct you accurately. For they say, take the first turn to the right. And when you do, they tell you later that they did not think you would consider that a turn, or that they meant the right going the other way. And so met W. Woodward and his wife, Helen, and liked them greatly. And I did ask him many questions about Washington. Well, that summer, my husband and I had a cottage in Westport. It was way off in the woods. There were woods in Westport in those days. And uh, it was a rainy, dreary Sunday. The inside of our log cabin was dark, and the trees were dark, and it was pouring. And the phone rang, and the voice said, This is Esther Adams, wife of Frank Adams, and we've just learned that you're in Westport. And Frank wants to meet Mr. Woodward. He's read his funk and lottery and wants to know the man who wrote them. This is Mrs. Helen Woodward, a writer and advertising woman and widow of W.E. Woodward, the distinguished novelist and historian. We were pleased to have come on such an awful day. Frank was tall and dark and haggard-looking, as he always was. He had a dry manner and, as usual, a rather sad look in his face. Like many a man who was witty, he didn't look happy. It seemed that Frank 
would read a book and get excited about it and then make it his business to know the man who wrote it. And uh, he, he didn't have wide interests, but he went overboard for verse and humor and wit. And he had a good deal of interest in American history. That's why he asked so many questions that day about my husband's Washington, which he was writing. And it was the beginning of a very nice friendship. Everybody, just everybody, read that column. There wasn't anybody who didn't read the column. It was part of conversation as automatically as breathing. And uh, there were people who got acquainted with each other because they saw each other in the columns. If you weren't feeling social, and we certainly weren't that summer or the one afterward because my husband was working so hard, uh, it was a substitute. <laughs> you saw your friends and what they were doing. You say you just read the column and knew what you wanted to know. It was a pleasant thing, a really pleasant thing. And you know one thing he did do that was definitely a very good thing. He started a great many people writing. The first time that Frank came with Esther, we were astonished at his appearance. We expected... Uh, somebody rather rubicund and round and uh, gay, and he wasn't. He was haggard and dark and saturnine. Saturnine is the word that describes the way he looked and his manner, and his. And he didn't say many amusing things, because I suppose he needed them. <laughs> but that's his soul goes. <laughs> Sometimes he did, but his whole approach was uh, rather that uh, sardonic approach we found amusing. It's true, writing was hard work for Frank. He proved the old adage, the harder the writing, the easier the reading. He was a guide to many people who became famous, but some of his most valued friends and contributors were not in the arts professionally. On March 22, 1924, he wrote, thence to Newman Levy's for a little, and saw his young daughter Margaret, and she sang for me, the kind of a girl that men forget, as endearing a thing as ever I heard a child do. And I told her I liked it, and she gave me a kiss. When I first uh, became acquainted with his column, started to write for it, which was back in 1910, it wasn't called The Conning Tower. He had started, uh, shortly before that, a column on the Evening Mail, and it was called Always in Good Humor. And it contained brilliant uh, light verse, epigrams, all sorts of witty comments, and uh, there was a certain uh, mystery about the authorship of these contributions. Uh, I learned later that the best of them, the most brilliant that appeared in the column, were written by F.P.A. himself. He was more than a mere editor. He uh, set the pace for us and stimulated an enthusiasm in a lot of us young youngsters who were ambitious to write. This is Newman Levy, a New York attorney who, as Flaccus, contributed to the Conning Tower for nearly 30 years, and who has published several volumes of the finest light verse of our time. Well, I uh, sent in my first verses almost uh, as soon as I discovered the Conning Tower. Uh, it was the custom then, and for most of the time thereafter, for the contributors to use pen names. And there were such strange names as Smeed and Daffy Down Dilly and others. And as I became uh, a column fan, I discovered that Smead was my friend Deems Taylor, with whom I'd been at college, and that Daffy Down Dilly was Louis Untermeyer, who was starting out on his career as a poet, and uh, a number of others in those days who have subsequently become extremely well known. Uh, about a year or two after I began writing for the Conning Tower, FPA announced that he was going to give a gold watch for the best contribution that appeared during the course of the year. I had a friend with whom I used to collaborate. We both had an interest in writing light verse and humorous stuff. His name was Nate Salisbury, and he had adopted the pen name of Barron Island. Nate and I uh, wrote a piece called The Children's Hour, 
which we sent to the conning tower, and that received the first gold watch that was ever uh, awarded by FPA. I may say that uh, FPA's uh, finances were not as good as they subsequently became, and he explained to us that these were not really gold watches because he had to buy two of them. He couldn't afford to buy two gold watches, so Nate and I each got a very nice gold-filled watch with an inscription in it. A group of young people who were contributing to the conning tower thought it might be a good idea to form an organization of contributors. We had an organization meeting, and it was decided to hold a dinner, and the dinner would be the occasion for the award of that watch. So at the end of the year, a dinner was held down on 3rd Avenue at a place called Sheffield's Hall, and the Toastmaster was Clement Wood, who was a uh, well-known poet at the time. FPA uh, used to refuse to come to any of our contributors' meetings. In fact, he uh, avoided meeting his contributors. Uh, after I got to know him better, he said he thought it was uh, a good idea for him to uh, be a rather aloof, mysterious character. So... He told me, I got to know him by that time, that he was going to send a representative uh, who would award the watch in his behalf. I asked who the representative was, and he said, well, you never heard of him. He's a young fellow named Robert Benchley who just uh, got out of Harvard, but uh, I think he will do. So after the dinner, we all did various stunts. A very solemn young man with horn-rimmed spectacles got up, pulled out a sheaf of manuscript, a couple of thousand pages it looked like to us, and in a solemn voice he announced that inasmuch as this was uh, an occasion for the awarding of a watch, he thought we might be interested in hearing some statistics about the development of the watch industry in America. That was the first time that anybody in New York had ever heard Bob Benchley and that speech, I believe, was the forerunner of his famous treasurer's report. Well, the Contributors' Union, we shortened the name. It was called the Contrib Union. I may say that uh, getting a contribution in the conning tower was an achievement that uh, we were very proud of, and it's pretty difficult to make anyone understand the importance of it today. I can say that to... Uh, get a piece in the conning tower was far more important to us than uh, winning the Pulitzer Prize would be at the moment. And uh, the head of the column, which was the place of honor, was uh, more important to us than winning the Nobel Prize for literature. And I may say parenthetically that I won two gold watches from FPA during the course of my contributing to him. I was going to Europe in, uh, I think it was 1914 or thereabouts, and uh, I passed a deck chair, and I saw the name Edna Ferber uh, on the chair. So uh, I went up to her, and I said, uh, my name is Newman Levy. And she said, let me look at your watch. Well, the uh, uh, Contrib Union grew until after a couple of years. It got so big that we had uh, enormous dinners. The last watch that I received was in 1922, and Herbert Swope was the Toastmaster, and he awarded the watch to me. And practically every literary celebrity in New York was present at that occasion. A uh, uh, list of FPA's contributors is almost like a, uh, a who's who in uh, the literary history of the past generation. And uh, those whom I know personally have all said what I can uh, truthfully say for myself, that it was the most uh, valuable school of writing and training that uh, any of us could possibly have had because FPA was a very uh, uh, acute critic a very fine editor, and set high standards for his column. And if anything got in there, it had to be good. I think that 
uh, Dorothy Parker and Ogden Nash and Ira Gershwin and Howard Dietz, oh, I can't remember all of them, uh, will testify that the Conning Tower was one of the most important influences in their uh, literary career. And the uh, uh, kind of humor that is characteristic of uh, so many of these writers, of Kaufman and Connolly, and uh, even Benchley and Ogden Nash and the rest of them, stems directly from the kind of thing that F.P.A. created in his conning tower. Frank Adams introduced many of us, not only to other people, but to the wonder of words. He wasn't usually considered a sentimental man, and his wit often had a certain sting. Tonight, we've heard several people refer to him as a poet. Like Frank himself, his poetry was usually light-hearted, and yet was underlined with deep feeling. For instance, let's recall these lines, called Lullaby. If, my dear, you seek to slumber... Count of sheep in endless number. If you still continue wakeful, count the drops that make a lake full. Then, if vigilance yet above you, hover, count the times I love you. And if slumber still repel you, count the times I do not tell you. On June 3rd, 1919, a spring day some years ago, FPA wrote to the office, where till evening, and then with A. Sullivan to dinner, and he brought a fine dark girl named Mabel, and we four drove through the park in a horse chaise, and Mabel had me put my arm about her, which I enjoyed mightily, nor did my wife mind it at all. Some of Frank's friends were talking about him the other day, and someone said, um, well, you know, there's one thing about Frank, uh, you can always count on him, you can always count on his being unpredictable. Well, uh, that got a laugh, and it's, and it's true enough. But it occurred to me at that time and that Frank, in one way, is a very consistent person. The way I know him best, and I should by now, is as a friend. This is Mrs. Mabel Surveyn, who had uh, just come to New York at that time and has since become an outstanding journalist, being now the editor of Woman's Day. And I can't offhand think of anyone who has a better conception of and performance in friendship. Frank goes all the way being a friend. Well, if, if you get in sort of a mix-up with someone, or you get in a tangle somewhere or other, and you're, you're sort of upset, Frank doesn't have to hear both sides of the story. If there's only one side as far as he's concerned. That's your side. You're right, your side is right, and that's all there's necessary. Uh, this is different from a lot of your friends who sort of get objective about you as though they're called in for an analysis or something. Frank's friendship is, is just that, plain and simple friendship. Um, he doesn't worry about being imposed upon either. He doesn't, you know, demand that you have the same kind of friendship for him that he has for you. Um, he'll take your brand if that's what you have to offer. Being imposed upon, he said once, as I remember it, is the greatest waste of time there is. Um, you waste a lot of time worrying whether you're doing, they're doing enough for you, and as a matter of fact, at the same time, you're probably imposing on someone else. And that, that you can't keep books on friends. And then another thing that I find very satisfying about Frank as a friend it may sound funny, but it's that he's selfish. I think selfish people make very good friends. You don't have to worry about them, for one thing. The ones that I have that are self-sacrificing are quite a burden. You're always worrying. I'm always worrying. Are they having a good time? Or are they being bored? Or should I be doing something about them? You don't ever worry about Frank because he's going to take care of himself, take care of himself very well. If he's at your house... Uh, he doesn't sacrifice himself to play a game he doesn't like or, or um, sit around entertaining somebody or listening to them. If he's being bored, he just gets out. And uh, that may not be Chesterfieldian exactly, but it, but it is restful. Um, and, and, and he makes good the same way if you're at his house because um, 
he doesn't expect you to be entertaining. He doesn't expect to entertain you. He um, goes his way, and you go yours. And, well, I don't know. That, that's that's uh, another advantage. You also know that he didn't invite you because he felt obligated to. He doesn't know anything about that. And he didn't invite you because he uh, wanted to give you a good time specially. He does. But you're pretty sure that he wants you there. And that in itself is, is uh, a nice beginning for a, a visit with anybody. I guess he has a lot of other sides, but whether any of them are more important than being a good friend, I wouldn't know, and I do think he's a very special kind of friend. FPA has retired now as a columnist and journalist, but his diary of our own Samuel Pepys will always be a unique history of a period. His poems will linger in the minds of many of us and will be discovered in the future by youngsters who have never read his column and never heard his name. You've heard mention of his translations from the Latin, his translations from the Odes of Horace, in one of them, Horace addressed Melpomene, the Greek muse of tragedy, and asked for his own portion of immortality. This is the way Frank Adams translated the last lines. Come then, Melpomene, why not admit me? I want a wreath that is Delphic and green. A seven, I think, is the size that will fit me. Slip me some laurel to wear on my beam. Okay, one laurel wreath, size seven, for FPA. A thing of shreds and patches Of ballad songs and snatches And dreamy lullabies And dreamy lullabies This has been a biography in sound. FPA, his column, and his friends. Produced and transcribed by the National Broadcasting Company. Our commentary was by Deems Taylor. And some of the friends were Russell Krauss, Sigmund Spaeth, Margaret Case Harriman, author of the forthcoming book, Blessed Are the Debonair, Herbert Byard Swope, Clifton Fadiman, author of Party of One, Helen Woodward, Newman Levy, and Mabel Hill Sylvain. This has been an NBC Radio Network production produced by Jack C. Wilson and Kenneth McGregor. This is Bill Rippey speaking. (laughs) 